Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Well, howdy, everybody. Scott kept the home fires burning as I was in CrimeCon this past weekend. Oh, oh, you said home fires, not set my home afire? Uh, oh, no. Oh, well, I'll, there's, I, I can stop the timer. Let's get to it. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish, as our content contains mature themes, harsh language, and graphic descriptions of violent crimes. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We are not experts on any of the topics we present, nor are we professional journalists. We're just two regular Canadians interested in the dark side of Canadian history. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double, and an Nanaimo bar, it's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Tonight's episode covers a horrendous crime that happened in March of 2010 in the small, quiet city of Langford, British Columbia. Uh, do you remember this one, Scott? Oh, I remember it vividly. It's a, it's a really horrible crime. Absolutely. Really, really horrible. We did put off doing it. We were going to do it. I think it was episode seven or eight. It was early on. It yeah. Was, it was in February. I had reached out to somebody involved in the case and they reacted quite badly. So out of respect, I thought that I would put it off. Yeah, that was the right thing to do, I think. You were not interested in negatively impacting people, but it, uh, but it's a story that needs to be told and we've given time. Yeah. Uh, Langford is just west of British Columbia's capital city, Victoria, on beautiful Vancouver Island. I love the island. It's a oh. pretty great place. And one of the most beautiful places uh, in BC. And on the planet. That's in, true. In my opinion. It's true. It has a population of just over 35,000 people. And the Langford City motto is golden in setting, determined in spirit. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. Uh, it's not the kind of place where you'd expect this kind of crime to take place. But when it did, it shook Langfordites to the bone. Yeah. Beyond Langford. On Friday evening, March 19th, 2010 at 7.50 p.m., a young man was smoking pot with his buddies under the Galloping Goose Trail Bridge. The Galloping Goose Trail is a 55-kilometer-long former rail trail that goes from Victoria to the ghost town of Leechtown, north of Souk. Hmm, I wouldn't mind checking out that ghost town. Uh, I think we should do a bit of a trip somewhere there. Yeah. At about 7.50 p.m., the young man spotted something horrific under the bridge over the Millstream Creek between Atkins Avenue and Whale Road in Colwood. It was the charred remains of a woman's body. Hmm, yeah. 
The group freaked out and called the police right away, and the cops immediately closed the trail to the public and started their investigation. The fact that this woman had died from foul play was evident right away. Investigators found a plastic bag covering her head, and her neck showed injuries consistent with strangulation. She had been stabbed and mutilated with a knife. Garbage, including the stick from a lollipop, had been stuffed into her anus and her vagina. Oh, my God. This is a terrible start to this. Yeah, this is going to be a, uh, another tough one, folks. Yeah, yeah, it really will. Victoria RCMP were hopeful that an autopsy would help to identify the body as it was burned beyond the normal means of visual recognition. Police asked anyone who had been in the area after Thursday, March 18th, to please come forward. As well, they asked residents to report if they'd seen, heard, or smelled anything unusual in the area. Uh, There's a unique smell to a... I would say, yeah. To a, a burnt body. At the time, police were looking into at least 29 missing women in southern Vancouver Island region, but one name stood out, and her name was Kimberly Proctor. Kim Proctor, who was called Kimmy by family and friends, was born on January 1st, 1992. She'd been missing since the afternoon of March 18th, the day before the body was found. <sighs> Kimberly's mom, Lucy, a Walmart manager, and her dad, Fred, were worried sick. Of course, it was not like Kimberly to disappear like this. Kimberly was in grade 12 and was excited about seeing her graduation photos. She never got to see them. Oh, one of our listeners reached out to me just recently about this particular case, and this is kind of what brought it back into my mind. He stated that Kimberly Proctor was friends with their daughter and, and was kind of a, he said, fixture at their house. Hmm. And he said she was just a great kid. This makes it even more hard to talk about knowing somebody who's had a bit of a connection with them. Yeah, everything I've heard about her is just in great support of her character. She was apparently just a salt of the earth, a wonderful, a good wonder kid. Yeah. The 18-year-old planned to stay home, taking a day off from school on March 18th. She was planning to go to a babysitting job later that day and then come home to sew her graduation dress with her grandmother. Kimberly left the house that morning wearing her black hoodie with a large red number 13 on the front. She locked the family dog in the garage and set the house alarm, as the family always did when there was no one home. You don't want the dog setting the alarm off. No, exactly. Yeah. That would be uh, a lot of frustration. Uh, absolutely. Kimberly hopped on the number 57 bus and got off at Callwood Bus Exchange, where she had been seen around 10.30 a.m. talking to two male classmates. Their names were Cruz Wellwood and Cameron Moffat. Kimberly did not show up for her babysitting job, which was unusual for her. Her cell phone was going direct to voicemail. No one could reach her. Her parents reported her missing and began searching right away. They handed out flyers and put up posters with Kimmy's picture on it. On March 19th, when Kimmy's family and friends heard the news of the burned body that had been found off the Galloping Goose Trail, they were obviously horrified and prayed that it wasn't their Kimmy. On late Monday night, the BC Coroner Service confirmed the Proctor family's worst fears. The identity of the body found under the bridge was, in fact, Kimberly Proctor. Oh, God, the poor family. I, I can't imagine. It's just every parent's absolute worst fear. God, I just want to give them hugs. Yeah. They had used uh, Kimberly's dental records to identify her. Oh. The little girl who loved cats and chatting with her friends on her computer was gone. 
Souk District School Board responded with having their critical incident response team's grief counselors sent to Kimberly's high school to help schoolmates cope with the loss of their friend. Kimberly, who suffered from attention deficit disorder, went to an alternative school called Pacific Secondary, where she could get the help she needed with her schoolwork. RCMP began interviewing witnesses, family, and friends of Kimberly. The obituary for Kimberly was heartbreaking and featured one of those grad photos that she had yet to see. Proctor Kimberly Patricia, taken from us on March 18, 2010, born January 1, 1992 in Victoria. She was the daughter of Fred and Lucy Proctor of Victoria. Kim was a kind-hearted girl who had a true love for animals, especially cats. She was very social and cared deeply for her friends and family. Kim was always willing to help people in need. They go on to say that she survived by many members of her family who loved her, and they had a celebration of her life on Sunday, April 18th, exactly a month after she passed at Mm -hmm. 2 p.m. And they wanted donations to be made to the SPCA, or Wild Ark Society. Another sign of her caring uh, character. The family also wished to extend their heartfelt thanks to their relatives and friends in the community for the overwhelming support shown to them. I remember watching a lot of the news about this particular case and just how heartbroken folks were for that family and how close of a community Langford actually is. Yeah, I think in even a larger community, it would still have had a very, very significant impact on a lot of people because it's the fear uh, so many people have. Yeah, it, it this is one of the more tragic cases in, in my mind that rips my heart out. And as a parent myself of two girls, it's impossible to not picture your family in that situation. And so it's just, it's the biggest fear I have. You talk about that pretty much every case uh, I, we cover. I do, I do. It's my Nancy Grace thing, like the twins. and Yeah. Police seized Kimberly's computer. They focused heavily on who Kimberly had been chatting with online prior to her death, on her social media profiles, MSN Messenger, and in her phone text messages. There were a number of leads right away. On March 6th, just 12 days before she went missing, Kimberly had posted on her Facebook page that her relationship with a boy had been recently ended and by her. She said she had to dump him because he turned out to be a psycho with really bad anger issues. That would garner police attention. Absolutely. Kimberly was also an active member of a goth website called VampireFreaks.com. I could not find her profile there, so I think that it's probably been removed by admins because, who knows, people may have been creepy. Oh, probably so. You know, I can understand why they would want it removed. Yeah. There she told others on the site that she was being bullied by other teenage girls. So rumors and speculation swirled online. Yeah. One very active Facebook group had over 5,700 members speculating on what had happened to Kimberly Proctor. Hmm. And I remember that, too. It seems that in this era of Facebook, this is kind of where people will congregate now to, to talk about this kind of crime and what their speculations are. And whether good or bad, it's interesting because sometimes people who are not involved in the crime at all tend to be accused or uh, publicly shamed. Yeah, it's a very mixed blessing, social media. I mean, it, it can play a very strong role in healing because it can let people come together yeah. and share memories mm-hmm. and commiserate together. But then it can pull in some unsavory characters or a lot of false accusations and speculation and Although a lot of 
what they saw on the Facebook groups was utter baloney. Yeah. Police were able to gather some information through the people posting on the site. One investigator commented that many people have zero privacy settings enabled, which gave police the ability to browse as they wished without the need for a search warrant. <laughs> if you perhaps are posting things that you want to remain private online, you should really check your security settings. Kimberly's personal computer revealed a lot, too. Messages on Kim's MSN account indicated that she had been chatting with a former boyfriend, Cruz Wellwood, into the wee hours of March 18th. Hmm. Cruz told Kimberly that he wanted to chill with someone that day and asked if she wanted to hang out. He wanted to tell her some things about Zach, a boy Kimberly had recently broken up with, the one I mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah. She had also been chatting with another boy, Cameron Moffat, very often over the past couple of months. Hmm. In fact, both boys had spent many hours chatting and flirting online with Kimberly intermittently in the months leading up to the crime. Hmm. Okay. Kimberly was suspicious as she and Cruz had been boyfriend and girlfriend in late October of 2009. Things had not ended well in that relationship, and now, out of nowhere, Cruz wanted to hang out. She was hurting from her recent breakup, though. Perhaps this attention was nice. Yeah, I mean, it's understandable. And probably uh, itching to talk to somebody, and if he's got info about her ex, I can see why. Yeah. Uh, it, it would, there'd be some appeal to hang out. But it was a lure. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Cruz asked Kimberly multiple times in their chat to meet at Langford Bus Exchange at 10 a.m. the next morning. He says they can talk about the Zach fiasco over a couple of bowls. And we're not talking bowls of cereal. It's BC. Sure. I mentioned earlier that Cruz Wellwood and his buddy Cameron Moffat are the two that Kimberly was seen with at the bus exchange that morning. They both admitted to seeing Kimberly, but said that she had left them and gone off to school. Cruz was asked what type of person would have done this horrible thing to their classmate, and he said, someone who thinks it's worth it to kill someone or someone who's in a fit of rage. What a bizarre response. Yeah. I don't know what I would say if somebody said, why did so-and-so kill somebody? Yeah, his response it, it is a bizarre response to give. Uh, people started talking, as they normally do, and there was a lot of gossip online, and much, much of it pointed to Cruz Wellwood and Cameron Moffat. Friends of the pair shared with police that Wellwood had been bragging online that it was he and Moffat who had actually killed Kimberly. Oh, God. Over the next few months, a 40-person team of RCMP officers investigated Kimberly's murder. And that's a, that's a pretty big team. And listen to this. More than 20,000 hours were spent on the investigation, and they conducted more than 250 formal interviews. For such a small town, that, that's quite extreme. And, and that's great to see. Uh, it's good to see that they treated this as uh, serious as it was. Interestingly, though, I think it is because the evidence was so easy to gather. In this one, it doesn't sound like it was very tough. And you're right. It was there for the finding. Yeah. RCMP had to sort through what was, uh, according to the Daily Mail in the UK, uh, the digital equivalent of 1.4 billion pages of paper evidence. Okay, wow. that's difficult. Wow. <laughs> Including Facebook and MSN messages, text messages, and chat histories. And this was between Kimberly and all of her friends. Mm -hmm. They became focused in on Wellwood and Moffat. They obtained search warrants to investigate the two more thoroughly, both on and offline. They kept the pair under surveillance, bugged their cell phones and houses, and even the place where they hung out in the park. Good, good. Yeah. Get them. 
if they're talking to other people, they're going to be talking to each other. Absolutely. They don't sound, sound like the smartest pair. Not rocket scientists for sure. No. Or, but thankfully, they, they weren't rocket scientists who went on to do more. Their stupidity hopefully leads to them getting caught. Uh, their Google and Wikipedia searches were closely scrutinized. What police were discovering was disturbing and damning for the pair. I bet. The two had been sharing violent rape fantasies for months via MSN Messenger and text messages. An online girlfriend and guildmate of Cruz's who lived in Halifax told police that Cruz Wellwood had admitted having committed Kimberly Proctor's murder to her over a chat in World of Warcraft. And this was on March 23rd, just five days after Kimberly's death. From a Vanity Fair article on the crime, Cruz's guildmate said... He told me specifically that he put a knife in her vagina and cut through to her organs. And he actually, like, bragged about that part, like he highlighted it. She also said, he told me that she went over to his house and they raped and murdered her and then took the body and burnt it. What a piece of shit. I'm an avid WoW player, as you know, and, uh-huh. and some of our uh, listeners know, because we've had conversations about it in the Umberyard. Yeah. I can assure you there are some interesting and angry people out there who feel that uh, the forum of World of Warcraft is safe, and they can say anything they want without repercussion. I mean, people report people for racist and sexist and violent things, Yeah. but if you just sit and trade chat in one of the main cities in World of Warcraft for a few minutes, you'll see what I mean. People are awful. When you can uh, gather people anonymously, people can be pretty terrible. From the same Vanity Fair article, What about her family and friends and all whose lives you have ruined? The girl asked Cameron Moffat. I don't feel bad for them, he said. Just don't ever again, she wrote Cruz back on MSN. I promise, Cruz replied. I have no desire to. Then in a sudden shift of focus, he told her he felt like playing a video game for old time's sake. I think I'm going to play Pokemon again. He said, I've had Pokemon nostalgia for months. What a book. Just so cold. those are the, so those two things are on par with him, you know, a murder and Pokemon. Like you can just transition between talking about those two things. They're equal to him. Yeah. What a terrible human. Uh, there's definitely some signs of uh, psychopathy there. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It, it does hint toward that. What does psychopathy mean? Uh, I guess we'll get into that maybe later. I'm smart. Okay. Transcripts of online messages between Wellwood and Moffat tell of a plan to kill Kimberly on March 17th, the day before it happened. Mm. The following interactions contain some graphic and disturbing details. Again, proceed with caution. Cameron Moffat, I guess we plan for it, but we'll keep our eyes open. Cruz Wellwood, lol, this is so funny. Jam a funnel in her, fill it with water, and when you're done, pour Drano in her. I'm going to rip her nose ring and burn it. Burn her flesh. Oh, my God. Cameron Moffat, I want to get it done. I don't want to wait. Cruz Wellwood, I'm not killing her right away. Cameron Moffat, why not keep her bound and alive? Cruz Wellwood, that's what I'm going to do, but I need to get her stoned first and possibly seduce her. Cameron Moffat, lol, try quickly. Cruz Wellwood, I'll say, I think I'm going to make some KD when I'm going to attack her. Cameron Moffat, wonder if she's got any money and stuff. I'm going to take stuff. Damn, well, I'll take whatever she has. I just despise these two guys. 
had this crime happen prior to the advent of cell phones and social media and all that kind of stuff, we would not have ever gotten this kind of insight into this no, crime. It, 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 there's a chance that they may not have been caught had, had we not had this digital footprint that they left Well, behind. they were flapping their lips about having done it to everybody they could, they could possibly talk to. Yeah, but there wouldn't have been concrete proof. Sure. You know, and so uh, it, it, they would likely still be caught, but it would be a much different, yeah. much different trial. Yeah, for sure. I think I'm going to make some KD. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, KD is craft Dinner yeah. here in, in Canada. It's mac, mac and cheese. Yeah. It, and it's a Canadian sort of, I wouldn't say it's a delicacy, but it kind of changes my thought of KD. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure that's a... Uh, um, Although I still... Uh, really like macaroni and cheese. Yeah, I'm sure that's not the marketing KD was hoping for. Yeah. Three days after the killing, there's another chat between the two about a newspaper article that a friend had sent Moffat. Camera Moffat, pretty sick shit. Cruz Wellwood, already saw this all in the news. He's so flippant. Yeah, yeah. Cameron Moffat, my dad said, if they asked me questions at school, not to answer them and ask for a parent. Uh, interesting. My initial instinct uh, isn't comfortable with that, with then with the what the, dad, the father, yeah. Uh, but I think the father' motive. I mean, maybe he does not know that Cameron Moffat has done this or suspect him at all. Absolutely. I mean, it, it could be quite a innocent thing. You know, we don't know the context of the entire conversation. Maybe he was just, um, you know, Dad, what do I do if the police ask me? Well, son, here's what you do, you know. But nonetheless, uh, knowing the context of the whole uh, situation, yeah. it doesn't make me feel comfortable. A week after the murder of Kimberly Proctor, Cameron Moffat sent another chilling message to Cruz Wellwood. He wrote, so since we killed that bitch and it wasn't too hard, we should do it again. Oh, God. Yeah, the callousness and lack of emotion or remorse about it makes me think that these two would. Well, that indicates to me that he got his jollies from it. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. uh, th th these seem to be the type of individuals, uh, murderers, who would continue. On May 26, police executed a search warrant on Cruz Wellwood's home in Langford, B.C., not far from where Kimberly was found. They did not tell the press why they were there at the time not wanting to compromise their complex investigation, which was still ongoing. Yeah. And that's why we don't see a lot of information from some other crimes that we know they're still investigating. Oh, absolutely. Like Bruce MacArthur, for yeah. example. Yeah. A day after the search of Wellwood's home, police said they had definite suspects in mind and pled for people who knew anything at all to come forward and talk with them. The sooner the better. Mm-hmm. Cruz Wellwood and Cameron Moffat were arrested on June 18, 2010, and eventually charged with the first-degree murder of Kimberly Proctor and committing an indignity to human remains. This was three months to the day after Kimberly Proctor's murder. That's, that's a pretty good turnaround in a murder investigation. Oh, absolutely. Uh, of this complexity. With this, with the quantity of data they mm -hmm. need to sift through. Absolutely. After the pair were arrested, both Moffat and Wellwood began blaming each other for the murder, but neither denied involvement. Moffat was interviewed on video for nine hours by RCMP investigators playing cat and mouse with them, giving only what he felt like talking about. He says he wasn't ready to talk to them. Cruz Wellwood initially clammed up, although he began blaming Cameron Moffat for the murder. Yeah. Moffat was not forthcoming at first, but his behavior and what he had to say is no less disturbing. 
He was not denying being there during Kimberly's murder. Here's some audio of Moffat's interview. Note, he's grinning like an idiot most of the time. The interviewer asked Moffat how it felt inside when the murder was happening. And how do you feel inside? Uh, uh, the biggest adrenaline rush you ever have, because it's, what the f***? Yeah. He talks about it being a, a, an adrenaline rush. Yeah, no remorse. Not an ounce of remorse. He absolutely got off on it. If anything, pride in in, in how he feels. And just, he's giggling while he's talking to the officer. Now, I I understand nervous, nervous laughter, but it's not that. No, no. I I hate, I hate these guys. Here's audio of Moffat chit-chatting about why he and Wellwood lit the fire that burned Kimberly beyond recognition. What is that fire trying to hide? All sorts of stuff. We uh, destroy evidence. Like, the only thing you can't destroy is damage, like the bones and stuff. Yeah, you can't destroy that. But you can't see bruises, all sorts of stuff. In there. So he was saying they wanted to hide bruises and, and such. It just, he's so matter of fact. That's the thing, just how, uh, it's as if he's describing what he had for lunch. Eventually, Cameron really started to talk. He admitted to taking Kimberly into the bathroom. He said he'd cut the duct tape from her wrists and ankles so she could use the toilet. Kim apologized and pleaded with him to help her, saying they could do anything, just don't hurt me. Poor girl. Yeah, considering the outcome, it's clear he wasn't listening. Cruz and Moffat both started talking eventually. The boys had been planning the murder for some time, as was indicative of all the evidence. Yeah, yeah. Kimberly, they thought, would be an easy target, but they didn't have any feelings for her one way or the other. She's a girl you knew. Cruz Wellwood actually dated her for a time. Yeah. And even if he's angry at her, you know, but he doesn't indicate that. He just said he felt nothing. Yeah, and I, and I believe that. Well, no, I don't, because I believe he, he felt uh, pleasure, what, yeah. joy from it. Treating Kimberly Proctor as though she is not a human being. I couldn't dislike humans more than these two. Cruz and Moffat began initiating their plan on the morning of March 18th. Cruz lured Kimberly into their trap. Before meeting up with Cruz at the bus exchange, Cameron Moffat had gone to the store to buy camp fuel that they would use to burn Kimberly's body after the murder. Cameron and Cruz met Kimberly as she got off the bus and and talked a bit before heading to Cruz Wellwood's house just down the road to smoke some dope. Wellwood said that he smoked weed a lot and even considered himself addicted. Everyone knew he always had weed, so if you wanted to get high, he was your guy. Once they got Kim into the house, they made their way into Cruz Wellwood's bedroom. They smoked a bit of dope, and then came the fateful words. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to make some KD. The boys attacked, viciously kicking and beating Kimberly. They duct taped her hands and feet. Once subdued, they stuffed a sock in her mouth and wound duct tape around her head. They cut off her clothes with a kitchen knife and duct taped a plastic bag over her head as well. Fuck. They took turns raping and beating Kimberly for hours, brutalizing and mutilating her with a kitchen knife. The fear this poor girl must have had. I can't even fathom it. No, God. And it just was so ongoing. Yeah. Cruz even thought about an alibi while he and Cameron were brutalizing Kimberly. He went to his computer and sent her a message over MSN. Hey, I thought you were babysitting. Did you finish early? His attempt to create an alibi also demonstrates how stupid he is. Because if he's thinking, oh, this digital footprint will help create an alibi for me, What about that massive amount of other digital evidence you left? So he's aware that people will be checking. 
Like this can be a good alibi for him, but yet he's so stupid. He can't realize that, well, there's all that other negative shit like you planning this. Yeah. Idiot. Kimberly's body showed that she'd been choked. Cruz had told his wow girlfriend that he strangled Kimberly and that he thought he had broken her neck to, quote, finish her off. Oh, God. Eventually, Kimberly suffocated to death due to the sock shoved yeah. in her mouth. After Kimberly died, both Moffat and Cruz had intercourse with her lifeless body, so now they're necrophiliacs, oh, too. Oh, God. When they were finished, they carried Kimberly to the freezer in the garage and stuffed her inside. A friend who saw Cruz online prodded him on MSN. Cruz didn't reply right away, but later wrote, Sorry, the freezer was jumping around. After Kimberly's corpse was stowed away in the freezer, Cameron Moffat texted his ex-girlfriend, asking her to sneak out of her parents' house to come party at Cruz's place. She refused. Lucky or smart, we're not sure, but her refusal may have saved her life for sure. Yeah, I feel pretty confident she would have been a goner. Yeah, I mean, or they would have shown her what they did. I think the other uh, bit could be that they plan to do nothing to her, but the high they would get from her being there and not knowing that she's dead in the house. That could be too. Yeah. She might have been an alibi for them. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Exactly. Interestingly, Cruz said that while they were in the act of murdering Kimberly, his parole officer came by and knocked on the door. He was constantly in trouble for one thing or another, as his record for previous crimes is sealed. We're not sure what it was that he'd done. Although we do get into some detail uh, later on. Detail about his past that could be very well related to that. The next morning, Cruz and Cameron stuffed Kimberly's body and their camp fuel into a hockey bag and got on the bus. Good God. Imagine. There were people on that bus, I'm sure. Using public transport to transport a body. Yeah. Just their their carelessness and their like confidence that they won't be caught or that they bravado, can just... Yeah, yeah, bravado. Just, oh my God. Hide everything in plain sight kind of thing. Yeah. And they oh. weren't. They weren't caught doing that. They got off near an entry point to the Galloping Goose Trail, took Kimberly's body under the bridge, doused her and the hockey bag with camp fuel and lit it all on fire. Cruz had been to school on and off since the murder. A friend overheard Cruz talking about the murder, and when she asked Cruz to stop, he stood up, and according to the Vanity Fair article on the crime, he yelled, No one fucking cares. She's dead. Who gives a shit? Another student had a similar encounter with Cruz. I'm glad she's dead, he reportedly told the boy. I hated her. I, like, I can't even believe the stupidity and just the uh, lack of any remorse or anything. They're just like... As far as I can gather, this was not out of character for him to be a, a dink. Really, eh? Yeah, as yeah. We, as we go along. They weren't done talking either, even though they were both incarcerated and waiting trial. Cruz was yapping away about Kimberly's murder to anyone who would listen in the youth detention center. Many inmates admitted to having conversations with Cruz about the crime. Cruz's phone conversations with his mother were also recorded. He was upset with her as she had brought him a suit that did not fit and he thought it made him look bad. He even goes as far as blaming his mother for his being in jail. 
Here's some audio of Cruz chatting with his mother. I'm relying very heavily on you, and you've been failing me every single time. Yeah, well, I fail you every time, don't I? But it's, apparently, that's why I'm here, right? Don't lay this on me, buddy. Yeah, his mother is like, don't pin it on me, buddy. Talk about somebody who's not willing to take any accountability or responsibility for why he is in the predicament that he's in, in or for the actions yeah, he's taken. In the least. In his head, uh, everything he's doing is justified. He's a victim. Yeah. Cruz also told his mother she was silly because she didn't want him back in her house if he got out. She was afraid of him. As she should be, being a murderer. Well, guess what? Hmm. Huh. Cruz Wellwood's parents had divorced when he was one and a half years old. His mother and he lived with his grandparents until they moved out as Cruz's grandfather found Cruz unbearable. <laughs> Although he wasn't close with his father, Robert Desuan, they did stay in touch, at least until his father ran into trouble of his own. Oh. When Cruz was seven years old, his father was sent to jail for the second-degree murder of a 16-year-old girl named Cherish Oppenheim. Oh. He was already on parole for robbery, confinement, and sexual assault committed in 1993. Deswan got Cherish Oppenheim drunk before raping and beating her to death, leaving her body by the side of a dirt road. Fuck's sake, like, the apple certainly didn't fall far from the tree. And we've seen that over and over again, and it's interesting how every case that we cover, it seems like there's some weirdness going on in their family somewhere. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's it's understandable that early childhood challenges and traumas and whatnot will help uh, form somebody. So Cruz was seven years old when his father yeah. did this deed. He's at an impressionable age. And you're seven years old, you think, does that mean I'm like that? Yep, absolutely. So, I mean, th those are things that I don't think create killers, but it's certainly something that is, is a part of forming that behavior. Wellwood's mother said she feared he was just like his father. Wellwood called her an idiot and said, if you're telling me that it's the sociopath gene and, and I can't control it, then you giving birth to me is the cause of everything in my life. Everything I've ever done, I can't control myself. Fuck you. Yeah, nice guy. Wellwood and Moffat were also recorded when they were being transported together in a sheriff's van to court for their very first appearance before a judge. Cruz was concerned with how his hair looked. Here's some audio. Does my hair look better back like this? Huh? Or should I just like... Because I figure if it's greasy, I might as well pull it back. Oh, my. Yeah, once again, just no sign uh, of... You're, you're in the back of a police van going to be arraigned on first-degree murder charges. Yeah. And you're talking about, does he, my hair look he's okay? He's concerned about how he's going to look. The thing with the suit, his hair, those are his concerns. The pair also talked about the interviews they had just been through. Cruz starts and finishes the chilling exchange. Here's some more audio. My lawyer said you might be able to get tried as a youth because during the time it took place, you were a youth. I uh, know. Well, you're still a youth. Yeah. <laughs> they showed me pictures, everything. They were really trying to stroke my ego, tell me how smart they think I am. And, oh, you're so good at manipulating and things like that. Really? They just made to seem like I got screwed over and they're like, we understand. And like, you touched me. The entire time, I had this expression. I just laughed at like half the things they said and just like sat there with a big ass grin on my face. They're like, remorse. Do you feel any remorse? Any, any regrets? Any, anything inside of you? Any, any remorse? Regrets? Any remorse? Ugh. Yep. 
one psychologist said she had concerns about this audio being made public as she felt it vilified the two. No kidding. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how villainous acts and conversation will vilify somebody. Yeah. Oh, you mean to say that it'll villainize the villain, do you? Mm -hmm. How terrible. The evidence was overwhelming, so Cruz Wellwood and Cameron Moffat decided to plead guilty to murder in the first degree and indignity to human remains. The debate was whether to sentence them as youths or sentence the pair as adults. The judge ordered eight weeks of psychiatric assessment prior to sentencing. At the sentencing hearing, it was determined that the two young men who had known each other since the fifth grade would be sentenced as adults. Good. And here's why. Thanks to the psychiatric observations of Moffat and Wellwood, a lot came out about the history of the two perpetrators. As Wellwood grew up, his mother found him harder and harder to manage. He even hit her on a few occasions. Cruz hated school and caused a lot of trouble there, becoming violent at the slightest confrontation. He fought a lot and beat up classmates. One student had his nose broken and another got bashed in the head with a bike chain. So these are probably the things that yeah, yeah. he was charged with. People described him as arrogant and having an air of superiority about him. And that's really evident in that audio that we played. Absolutely. Cruz was suspended as unmanageable in 2008, but came back later the next year. He also had been treated for heavy drinking in the summer of 2009. Hmm. From court records of this case, Dr. Ryer's opinion is that Mr. Wellwood has deviant sexual disorders and strong traits of psychopathy. There are treatments available in both youth and adult systems, but, he says, Mr. Wellwood's psychopathology is better treated in the adult system. Dr. Ryer's clinical impression is that Mr. Wellwood is at a very high risk of committing a similar crime in the future if he is released untreated and unsupervised into the community in the next 25 to 30 years. Yeah, I, I'm typically not somebody who uh, supports juveniles being treated as adults in the court, but there has to be some separation and distinction in, in, in the severity of a crime because... Um, it's more black and white in the U.S. Yeah, and I, I'm okay with with it not necessarily being black and white, uh, but unlike my photos, but uh, your mind isn't properly formed at that point, not fully formed, but crimes like this, not going to be something that was just related to being young and not fully developed. Like it's just, you're a criminal murderer and, and it would continue into for the rest of their lives, I'm sure. Cruz Wellwood uh, admitted to the doctors about training himself to shut off emotionally in his early teens. Uh-oh. Mm -hmm. He was also described as narcissistic and had no remorse for Kimberly Proctor's murder or anything else for that matter. Yeah, yeah that's evident. Wellwood was diagnosed as a sexual sadist, a tendency to gain sexual gratification from inflicting pain on another. He also showed substantial psychopathic traits and indicators for necrophilia, one psychologist said Cruz was aroused by the physical and psychological suffering of others, had rape fantasies, and was interested in bondage and sexual asphyxia. About his father at sentencing, Wellwood stated, As a child, I hated my father for what he had done. I felt I was less than him, and now I have become a worse man. If you told me ten years ago that I would commit one of the worst murders in British Columbia, I would not have believed you. Yeah, I'm calling shenanigans. I think he knew he was going there. Well, I, I see somebody trying to get out of a, a long sentence here. Oh, absolutely. Like yeah. it, it, it's, um, that's not genuine remorse or genuine reasoning. 
It, yeah. It's manipulation. Cameron Moffat, Cruz Wellwood's compadre, was no less scary. Moffat was also difficult to manage from a very early age. He'd been sexually assaulted at three years old by an unnamed person. Moffat's parents separated when he was nine, and he regularly fought with his older brothers, and he would hit his younger sister. He was a problem at home and in school and was prone to violence even to the point of threatening his sister with a box cutter one day at school, and this got him suspended. He set fires and would kick his dog, so there's two of the uh, yep. McDonald triad right there. Yep. Uh, the only thing we don't know about is peeing the bed. Yeah, I suspect he's a bedwetter. The psychologist who had spoken with Moffat said, although polite, charming, intelligent, and cooperative, they also saw he was suspicious, grandiose, glib, and shallow emotionally. Mm -hmm. He claimed to be a sex addict, saying at one point that he was having sex at least 30 times a day. I, I, I have to assume that's with himself. I, 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 I'm just leaving it at that. Sure. It was found that although he expressed remorse for the murder, Cameron Moffat was at risk to reoffend and should be monitored for the remainder of his life. I thank you for that finding. Yep. Yep. Justice Robert Johnston sentenced 18-year-old Cameron Alexander Moffat and 17-year-old Cruz Wellwood to life in prison with no chance of parole for 10 years. This is the maximum penalty under Canadian law for youths who commit first-degree murder. Yeah, it uh, doesn't leave me feeling comfortable. Well, if they had been sentenced as youths, they would have gotten 10 years total. Wow. And six years of that will be in custody, and four years will be supervised in the community. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Thank God that wasn't the case. I see a couple of serial killers in the making. Oh, I absolutely. That whole folly adieu idea. Yeah. Like, uh, Bianchi and uh, Buono, the Hillside Stranglers. That's who I was thinking of when I was uh, I was reading mm. uh, about these guys were the Hillside Stranglers, which is an interesting case. Yeah. Kimberly Proctor's parents spoke out after the sentencing. Her dad, Fred, spoke about Kimberly's potential aspirations. You know, she talked about being a counselor and when she finished school or working with wild or domestic animals. We don't know. It's we'll never be... know now. Kimberly's mother, Lucy, had words for the mothers of the two murderers. As a mom, like, you see the signs. You know when your child is, something's wrong with your child when they're jing over in the crib. And, and to, to, to see what these two have been like and to totally ignore it, well, you know, as a parent, you failed. Yeah, she was right. Yeah, yeah. All absolutely. the signs were there. Yeah. From Cruz Wellwood's blog, formerly caruzu.wordpress.com in 2009, he wrote A Grain of Salt by Cruz Wellwood. Early warning signs of a serial killer. This is rather chilling. Mm -hmm. One, bedwetting into adolescence around age 12. Two, fascination with fire. Three, from an early age, many are intensely interested in voyeurism, fetishism, and sadomasochistic pornography. Four, abuse of animals in childhood. Five, high IQ. Well, I think maybe that's not an exaggeration in this case. Yeah. Uh, six, despite high IQ, does poorly in school. Seven, comes from a markedly unstable family. Eight, families often have psychiatric and or alcoholic histories. Nine, 90% of serial killers are male. Ten, as children they are often abandoned by their fathers. Eleven, they often resent their parents. Twelve, they are abused as children physically, mentally, or sexually. Thirteen, 
Many serial killers spend time being evaluated by mental health professionals, sometimes also spending time in mental health institutions. 14. Suicidal Tendencies He goes on to say, Serial killers do not always meet these criteria. Only 60% of serial killers, for example, wet their beds into adolescence. Not all serial killers are male. In addition, these are simply patterns that have been observed among past serial killers. It is unlikely a serial killer, let alone many serial killers, will meet all the criteria listed here. The peculiar thing is I meet all 14 criteria. Apparently, though, meeting all criteria makes it unlikely for the subject to be a serial killer. I suppose only time will tell. Although if I become a homicidal maniac, it will be on my own terms because of my own actions. Oh, much better. I'm not having some statistic predetermine my fate. My life will be determined by my own action and sentience. This whole list should be taken with a grain of salt. That is to say, do not take it too seriously. Until next time, denizens of Tewebs. No, I, I actually think it should be treated uh, not with a grain of salt and serious, because it clearly, your list uh, explained to you. Accurately. And Accurately. He, he admitted to having all of, all of those things. Yeah. So, so no, great list. Uh, from applied issues in investigative interviewing, eyewitness memory and credibility assessment. Here's a little bit uh, from John C. Ewell. And this is speaking about why people don't take online admissions seriously. Moffat mm -hmm. admitted that in the days leading up to the murder, he discussed different potential techniques for committing murder with over a dozen people in various online forums. One can only assume that if he had similar conversations with these individuals in face-to-face contexts, somebody would have notified a parent or the authorities. However, their default assumption was likely that he was joking about such heinous information and would never have been honestly reporting intent to commit murder. Adding to the confusion were some of these conversations about the, quote, real world occurred within the online discussion group for the online fantasy game World of Warcraft. Sadly, if police had been notified about some of these online interactions, this tragedy would have potentially been avoided. In addition to this surprising general lack of suspiciousness and lack of clarity around the norms of what is honest intent within online contexts, there are a number of other issues that potentially compound the difficulty of detecting deceit in online contexts. I get that, and there's a power behind that. But what stands out for me is that even admissions online from him weren't treated serious by the person receiving it, his girlfriend online. When, mm. when he explained, told her that he murdered the girl. Well, they were talking about it even prior to. Yeah, uh, but he, he told her that he did it mm. and she did not report it. Yeah. So that's not, that's not like, you know, uh, innuendo or yeah. uh, hinting towards something like, you know, yeah. In the years following, Kimberly Proctor's family, in particular her aunt and grandmother, began a campaign for changes to laws around the Young Offenders Act in Canada. And they called the changes Kimberly's Law. And this is from their website, uh, Kimberly'sLaw.com. Here's a summary of what they are looking for. So threat assessment protocols in schools. So, yeah, let's assess these kids to see if they are potentially violent. Mm -hmm. Mandatory counseling and treatment. A goal should be to identify and administer troubled youth uh, before they commit harm. Parental responsibility. Now, this is an interesting one. The primary source of information, control, and responsibility for young people remains with the parents. Laws should be amended to include civil relief for damages from injury to a person or loss of life to a maximum of $25,000. 
So holding the parents responsible financially in some way for not living up to their responsibility for raising a, a child who's not a serial killer or a murderer. Yeah, this is the only one that I, uh, well, one of the only ones I have uh, a bit of trepidation around. It's not always the fault of an up, of, of a of a parent that the child goes awry. We've seen many, many a case where the parents were fantastic and great parents, but uh, I, I'm not comfortable with blaming, putting responsibility on the parent. Do I think that there are situations where that should be the case and there should be a way to hold them accountable? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think this is a case where it definitely seems like the parents should be held accountable. But I, I'm not comfortable with a law that says all parents. Hmm. Transfers to adult court. Uh, transfers to adult court for violent offenders who have been convicted of first or second degree murder for anyone 16 or older. Mm -hmm. I kind of agree with that one mm -hmm. for sure. Publication of young offender names upon guilty plea. The public is currently barred from knowing the names of young offenders until sentencing. So if they're not sentenced as adults, we would never find out. Yeah. And you would just not know that there was a, a kid who was murdery in your, in your neighborhood. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Yeah. And uh, who knows, you know, you let your kids play with them or hang out with them because you don't know. Yeah. Truth in sentencing. Young persons sentenced as adults for first or second degree murder should receive the same incarceration period as adults. Interim custody, young persons who are charged with first or second degree murder under the criminal code should be detained in custody separate and apart from other young persons in the same facility. This will ensure that other young inmates are not exposed or traumatized by boastful details of the crimes committed by these charged with first or second degree murder. I kind of agree with this in a mm -hmm. way, because another child hearing about murder, you know, that is not something that you, I mean... You see video games, you see horror movies, all that kind of thing. But like the description of an actual crime from a perpetrator, uh, these things have not yet to be adopted, although progress has been made. John Horgan, who has been one of the supporters of Kimberly's law and provincial government, has now become our premier of the province. Perhaps these changes may just happen. Yeah. This could be on the horizon. Yeah. We have a couple of podcast promos this week. Here's one from the Menzurea podcast. Love your accent. Mens rea is the legal principle of intent that must be proved in a number of crimes, such as murder. It means literally, the guilty mind. The Mens rea podcast explores the most notorious crimes from Ireland and the UK and the court cases that followed. Every fortnight, a new case is discussed. So if you like hard-hitting, in-depth true crime podcasts, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from and subscribe to the Mens Rea podcast today. Here's a promo from Roseanne at California Dreaming. And I, I love the title of that one. Too. Yeah. Hi, I'm Roseanne, host of the California Dreaming Podcast, a show that delves into the darker side of the not-so-golden state. Together, we will visit some of the most unhinged and chilling crimes that ever shook California and beyond. Join me as I take you on a journey into a new story each week with a different backdrop from all around California. From the bright lights and glamour of Hollywood to the picturesque and tranquil wine country. No crime, 
No town, nobody is off limits. Listen to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network or anywhere you listen to podcasts. These are two excellent true crime podcasts that you should definitely check out. And uh, they, they have promoted us and we are doing likewise because we like what they do. Also, I forgot to post this one. Here's listener Kelly McLaughlin telling us to go shit in our hats. Dear Mike and Scott, go shit in your hat. Bye. We are still very willing to play listeners telling us to go shit in our hat. Uh, So if you like, send us an audio file of yourself and we will play it in a future episode. So send it to darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Hat shitting. Hat shitting. We want to give some shout outs to our new patron patrons and we have two. Morgan Creelman from Vancouver, who used to work for me at that telecom that we worked at. My apologies, Morgan. He's a great guy. He's a funny guy. I bet. Robin Warder, uh, the host of The Trail When Cold, who I did uh, the episode on Minds of Madness with just recently. Well, and so, you, Robin. Thank you. Hello, uh, Trail Went Cold listeners, and hello, Minds of Madness listeners. And Minds of Madness listeners like to be called Maddies. Oh. Because they're, they're mad. Well done, Matties. Yeah, they're they're pretty awesome. Thanks so much, Robin and Morgan, for your pledges. We really appreciate it. Also, uh, Robin sent me a message this morning saying that our podcast is number 73 overall in Canadian podcasts. That is pretty mind-blowing. No kidding, because there are some fantastic podcasts out there that we are now ahead of in the rankings. Absolutely. Like, And this is overall. This isn't just in true crime. These are our podcasts. Yeah. It's behooving. Oh, my God. This again. Yeah. Now I'm all befuddled. I am befuddled, which is an actual thing. Not behooved. (laughs) Thanks so much for your pledges. We really appreciate it. If you want to donate to us, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine or send us some donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Check out our website, www.darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine and tell your friends. Especially fun. We've mentioned the Yumber Yard. We're active in there. You can come in there and actually have like weird conversations with us. The weirder the better. Sure. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast directory like iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, and at our hosts, Podbean. I've fixed the RSS feed so you can see episodes one through five now. So anybody who uh, wants to binge some more episodes, they're there for you if you haven't been able to get them previously. So that's it for this episode. It was a toughie, uh, but I think it it was one that definitely warranted being told for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.
new on Showcase. You were in a concentration camp in World War II. I was a young man locked up in a terrible place. Based on the international best-selling book. But I found something there. Someone. We must keep living. Whatever it takes. The Tattooist of Auschwitz. All new Sundays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.